We've been studying as a church uh, Ephesians for the last few months, and we've kind of split it into two broad sections. The first five chapters are now chapter six, where we are spending some time looking at the armor of God. We're looking at uh, how God will arm us to face the fight of faith that we're called to engage in as believers. And so we are working our way through this armor piece by piece, and we've arrived today at the uh, feet, uh, the shoes, or the sandals of the readiness of the gospel of peace. So I'm going to begin by reading just a few verses uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, and then we'll see where we, where we go with that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to take your, uh, stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all, uh, on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Father, we believe that this is your breathed-out word. This is not just a few ancient ideas in a book but this is God's word fresh to us today. Lord, we believe by your Holy Spirit you can make this word live in our hearts and minds and our experience, both individually and corporately as a church. Father, for the good of your people, for the furthering of your kingdom, Lord God, so that Bristol would know that Jesus is alive. And we pray as we come under the authority of your word right now that you would live by your spirit in us and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. How important are your shoes? Depending on who you are, you get a different answer, I guess. Um, the only way to really know how important something is, of course, is to, is to get rid of it. And then you kind of know, don't you? So I'm going to take my shoes off. And uh, uh, that's the only real way to know. You don't know, you know what you've got until it's gone. That's often the truth, isn't it? Um, how important are your shoes? Um, the sun came out a few days ago. Do, do you remember that? That, that, was, that was our summer, by the way, so I uh, should have booked West Point for that week. All would have been well. But uh, when the sun came out, I was actually I was wearing shorts and no shoes, and someone came to our house to pick something up that we had in the house. And uh, I thought, well, I, I'll be fine just carrying it out to the car without any shoes on. And uh, having not been barefoot for quite a few months, this proved to be somewhat problematic, in fact, very painful. And it's only 20 or 30 yards to the car, and the pavement is pretty smooth. And by the time I got back, I was in agony. Those little stones that get stuck up in your, in your foot. It was really painful. And it came home to me, yeah, shoes are pretty important. And uh, none more so than the ones we're going to talk about today. 
Someone once said this, they said, if you're going to spend money, spend it on your bed or spend it on your shoes, because if you're not in one, you're in the other. Uh, there's a bit of logic there. In other words, you know, these are, these are two areas where you will always either be in one or the other, so that's where to put your money. Maybe that's a good idea. I'll leave you to think about that. Probably is. The average UK citizen, according to, this is from the internet, so please take it with a pinch of Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> The average UK citizen has 19 pairs of shoes. And some of you are thinking, I'll have to get, get rid of a few pairs to you know, get it down to 19. And some of you are thinking, I don't even own 19 shoes in the house altogether. And that's, by the way, that's the same for men and women. Men and women, equal numbers of shoes. Apparently for men, it's mostly trainers. So if you know any guys, you realize that you know, having the right pair of trainers is high priority the right, uh, so the right, you know, you're going to run, but how are you going to run? Are you going to run on grass? Are you going to run on pavements? Where, you know, the whole thing becomes a bit of a mess. Now, how much do we spend on these things? Well, here's a stat that's going to blow you away. Apparently, in a lifetime, it's over 30,000 pounds spent on shoes. So if you, again, that is from the internet, so please just bear that in mind. But if you're thinking, if you've got young children, just don't buy them shoes put the money away, and by the time they're 70, you can buy them a sports car. So uh, they'd have really, really hard soles to their shoes, uh, their feet, if they did that. And the top spenders, this is a demographic, I think, for this congregation, the top spenders are people between 25 and 35. So they're the top spenders on shoes. Of course, I fall easily within that demographic, and therefore share your passion for footwear. Shoes play a big part in our lives. I think I've made the point. And so they did for the Roman soldier. Now, of course, it's the Roman soldier who Paul is directing our attention. And uh, as Ben was reminding us last week, Paul was, uh, was, was chained to one of these soldiers whilst he was uh, writing this letter, most likely. And so for him, it was a very live issue. And so what Paul is doing is describing the different parts of the Roman soldier's uh, equipment and, uh, and uh, armor, and then saying, and there are parallels with the Christian walk. And in order for us to fight the fight of faith, which God calls us to, individually and corporately together as church, uh, we need to know what the armor is, how to put it on, and we need to be familiar with its uses so that we are armed and prepared. And even in the passage we just read, we see the emphasis on footwear. It's four times Paul says, stand, stand firm, take your stand. He says it over and over again. And in order to stand firm, like I am not doing right now, in order to stand firm, you need to have the right shoes on. You need to be ready. You need to be prepared. And of course, the, the shoe of the Roman soldier was not a, a, a boot like you might imagine a, a current day soldier would wear. It was the sandal. It would be a thick soled leather sandal that would have been strapped, not just to the foot. These were not flip-flops but strapped up the leg as well. So they would have been well and truly secured to the soldier. And the thick sole was there for a reason, because one of the ways the enemies would attack the Roman army would be to bury spikes deep underground with just the point sticking out. So you can just imagine with no shoes on, if you hit the point, you're going to be taken out of the battle 
quite easily. Your feet would have been very vulnerable to that kind of attack. And of course, that was the point. They wanted to take the soldiers out of the battle. No matter how good the rest of your armor was, no good how good your sword was, how great your shield was, all the rest of it, if you can't move, you're taken out of the battle. And that's the point of today's pit of the armor. We need to have our feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace so that we are both stable and maneuverable. It's really important that we can move and that we have stability. Someone read earlier, didn't they, that we are to be strong and courageous. The same idea, really, to be stable and to be maneuverable. Those are the things we're going to draw our attention to from this passage today. Stability and maneuverability. Those two things come from the gospel of peace. Remember, too, that as Paul goes through the armor, he is both identifying areas of vulnerability and at the same time, in the same breath almost, saying this is how to combat those areas of vulnerability. And here he's talking about the gospel of peace. He says you can be vulnerable, it can make you immobile, it can cause you to be unstable, and he's not He's really talking about our faith at this point. You can become unstable. You, you, can be, you can slip about if you're not sure of the gospel. That might seem strange because some of you have been Christians for a very long time. Some of you may not be Christians this morning. But for people who've been Christians for maybe decades, you think, yeah, I know the gospel. I know it. Of course I know it. I've heard it hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And yet Paul is writing to us and saying, don't forget you can be vulnerable in this area. Be aware that you need to have your feet shod with this gospel of peace. And actually the idea that Paul uses and the word he uses is preparation. He says that be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that's kind of an old-fashioned word. We kind of think, yeah, well, I'm preparing. I'm prepared to go out. I'm preparing to write an essay or something. And that's just a very uh, kind of surface understanding of what preparation really meant. And for us, better words might be these that would carry more meaning for us. That would be a firmness or a confident sense of assurance in the gospel of peace of peace, a, a firmness, a confidence, an assurance. These are, the, these are the words that help us understand what this uh, idea Paul is speaking about carries for us today. For the believer to take their stand, we need to know and experience the gospel. There's head knowledge and then there's heart knowledge, isn't there? It's, you can understand something. You know, I understand the gospel. I, can, I could do a test and I could, I could tick the boxes. I'd get a good score. And then there's living it. There's when you face a challenge, where do you go to find your stability? Where do you look to find your strength? And often, I think even with, for the ex- experienced believer, and I'm speaking of myself, I've been a believer for a long time. Sometimes I look to other places. I look... Elsewhere for, for assurance and elsewhere for stability. I look for temporal things. And Paul is saying, here is your stability. It's in the gospel of peace. Be f- very familiar with it. Be, have it in your mind daily, Paul is saying. In fact, Paul spends the first uh, five chapters of the book explaining what the gospel is and how it works out in the life of the church and the life of the believer. So important he thinks it is. And we need to be sure of it. We need to be confident in it. And it's full of ideas that are hugely challenging to the culture around us. 
So when you decide, I'm going to put these sandals on, I'm going to live this out, I'm going to live it in and live it out, you're clashing with the culture around you. Immediately you find the battle lines are drawn. If you are wondering what I mean, let's read something that Paul describes earlier in in Ephesians chapter 2 and see what he says the gospel actually is. And if, you, if you're not a believer this morning, if you wouldn't count yourself a Christian, this is what it means to become one. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's to believe these things. I'll read the passage, a few, just five verses, and I'll explain what they mean as far as I can. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. There, Paul says, is the gospel. It's there. In those verses, a description of what it means to understand what Jesus has done and to follow Jesus. It's to believe those things. At first it says this, and this is the gospel. This is what Paul says brings you stability, is to believe and to live these things out. At first it says you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't following God. You were outside of his family. It said that's what we have to start with. And for someone to come to Christ, to come to become a Christian, that's the first thing to recognize. I can't do it on my own. I've got nothing to bring to this. A corpse has nothing to bring to a party. There's, there's just, there's nothing. There's nothing. That's how you are, says Paul. That's how mankind, humankind, outside of God, that's your position. You were dead. Far from God. And it describes that condition as sinful. It gets worse. Paul just piles unpopular things on top of other unpopular things, but he does it without shame. He says, this is your foundation. Make sure you understand this. You are sinful, far from God, not following him. In fact, following your own ideas and thoughts, just the best you could do on any given day, and that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. You've got no credit with God. By all your good behaviors, on your very best day that you ever had, it says this, you were disobedient. So unpopular. Children don't like being told you're disobedient, do they? Now, you, you, you kind of amp that up to an adult. Who, who likes to be, you've been disobedient. It's like, but that's what the scripture tells us. It says, you were disobedient. You were following your own ways. You were out of step with God. I was saying up in Bradley Stoke, and I don't think I've ever said to my children, ah, you're out of step with me today. No, I'm saying you've, you've, you've done something wrong. And that comes with consequences, and so it does for all of us. We were out of step with God. We were sinful before him, and then it gets even worse. It says you were dead, you were out of step, you are disobedient, you were deserving of wrath. Talk about unpopular concepts that are beyond, just this is not culturally kind of happy ground, is it? It's like you're, you are deserving of God's wrath. That's where you start with. Or that's where the, your position is where you find yourself as an unbeliever. That's where you start with the gospel. And if you don't, then if you don't start there, you can't really go any further. But 
into the midst of that condition, what do we find? We find in that state, that's how we all were, how I've been, how you are and have been. Into that state, as you were, God loved you. He loved you. He loved you far from him. He loved the dead corpse deserving of wrath. And he gave himself for you at that point. And in an understanding of that interaction between you and God is the beginnings of stability that gives you confidence in the gospel. It means you stand firm because you know it was nothing of you. So you see, if you, if you start to dispute some of these things, well, I think actually, maybe I think, I, you know, I was quite good. I had something to offer God. I, I think actually, God, you know, I'm not surprised God chose me. I think I would have chosen myself too. If we, begin to, if we begin to think that way, if that even enters our thinking at all, instead of humbly approaching God, pride seeps in and our feet will be taken out very, very quickly. Pride is the enemy of the gospel. Can't come to God proud. There's parable after parable where Jesus describes that it takes humility to approach God. Come humbly. You have to come on our knees. He says it's, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, why do the rich come in for such criticism? Well, because often worldly wealth makes us proud. We think I've got something to offer. I don't need help. I don't need others. I've got everything I need. And that's the opposite of the beginnings of an understanding of the gospel. And God loved us and he pursued us in that state. He pursued you and it says this, and he made you alive where you were dead. He breathed his life into you. And even as he breathed out his life on the cross, in his last breath it's finished, so so he breathed his life into you. Even at that moment, substituting his final breath for your eternal breath in him. He gives you life, undeserving. Gives it to you. He's paid fully the price that was God's wrath for sin. He paid it fully. And he gives it to you and all this by his amazing grace. Incredible, unmerited, undeserved, unsought for. And yet he gives it to you, all of it, in one go in Jesus Christ. It's wonderful news. And it's your foundation. It's your footing. It's your sandals. It's your firm standing before him. The onslaught of the enemy would be the rob you of those things and so would have your feet taken out from underneath you both individually and corporately it's easy for it to be done you see a grasp of these things means that we are humble before God and we're humble before each other if I think anything else than those truths about what the gospel is I start to be proud in myself and guess what I start to be proud in my dealings with others in the church so I start to think well I'm 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 a bit better. I wasn't really dead. I wasn't really deserving of wrath. I wasn't really a sinner. And I, but, but that person is. So they, they need to, you know, they need to sort themselves out before they can really participate. And actually the leveler of the truth of the gospel is this. No one's here by merit. The smartest person in the room, the richest person in the room, the most connected person in the room has no more merit before God than anybody else. We're absolutely leveled before him. There is no hierarchy in God's kingdom. Because we're all in to the grace of Jesus Christ. It keeps us, as we look each other in the eye, remembering you are, a, you are a trophy of God's grace. And thank the Lord, so am I. 
And when we look at being a diverse community, we need to remember that. Because, because all the culture around us tells us different things about what it means to be united together. And as Stephen D. come in a few weeks' time, I encourage you to get to that seminar. They're going to talk about how we could change to more reflect a gospel community, to be more like this. The things that might be we wouldn't be aware of, that we can easily do, that means that people feel like they don't quite belong. And we need to look at those things. If we're going to reflect the gospel amongst us, if our, our feet are truly to be rooted to the spot in terms of our confidence in God. And of course, these things too, they remind us not just humbly before one another and humbly before God, they, they also remind us of our utter dependence on Him. We go to Him when we need help, and He is willing with great joy to provide, just as He does in the gospel. Now, how do we, well, we remember these things, I hope, as we worship, as we come to God's Word, but there's a primary way that Jesus put in place where we remember the gospel and it gives us stability, and that's through communion together. So when we have communion together, which we do from time to time on a Sunday, and I hope you do, and I hope you will do, in groups together, the best place really for communion, the most, most kind of biblically honest is around a meal, as you eat together. And then you share bread and wine together. You're remembering these things are true. You're reminding yourselves. You're doing something physical to remember it's all of God. It's none of me. You remember my brothers and sisters are worthy or Jesus are worthy of Jesus' blood and, and death. You remember he's made you so through his death and resurrection. It's that leveler of relationships. No one in the kingdom by merit, all by God's grace. So it makes us stable. And it's, it's well enough to know those things, but we need to ask the Holy Spirit to make those things live in us. We need to go to those truths of the gospel when we find ourselves wavering. What is it? Well, I got here because God loved me. I didn't ask first. He sought me first. He's forgiven me completely forever. We need to go there when the enemy would accuse us of things. And we need to remember that others also need help to find their way to the cross again and again. You see, the gospel, we might think, well, the gospel is good for people who don't believe this yet. We need to do that. We need to remind people of this. It's good for the believer. It's good for the, that's why communion is instigated by Jesus, to remind yourself again and again, because we easily forget and find ourselves un, uh, unfooted, as it were, unseated in our footing. That's the first idea. The second idea is this, mobility. Good footwear makes you mobile. Uh, and that's what I'm beginning to struggle with as my feet get colder and colder here this morning. Started to find it difficult to even be mobile on a relatively soft carpet. Shows what a wimp I am. But listen, mobility is a much understood and much pursued uh, strategic war weapon. Armies that are mobile are often very successful. And the ability to move a, a large force unexpectedly into a different position is often how uh, wars are won. If you remember, some of you are looking out, one or two of you probably remember the Falklands crisis. I think it was probably a war, but we called it a crisis at the time. Whatever, we, we fought in the Falklands, if you remember that. Do you remember the, the, the concept of yomping? That the soldiers carrying their full pack could get across difficult terrain very quickly, and suddenly there they were in a place the enemy didn't expect them. And it meant they were very successful uh, in the campaign, of course, that campaign was won. And, and throughout the uh, ancient and modern armies, to be mobile, to be quick, uh, to move, 
and to get yourself positioned is well understood and often brings about a victory. Now, throughout the church history, throughout church history, what we find is we have periods where the church is very mobile and active and often very successful. And then other periods where the church uh, becomes inflexible and stagnant and then often uh, leads to the success or, or, or the lack of success with the gospel. Now, most of this passage is a, is a message to believers about their own inward life, their fight of faith, but it also spills out very quickly into how we pursue the gospel amongst us and in our city. And this is where we'd like to go, really, with this today. Our willingness to adapt to different methods in order to remind ourselves and to keep flexible with the gospel is going to be the difference sometimes between success and failure. To be mobile, to be, flex- to be flexible is really key for us. You see, we criticize sometimes past generations, and you may be one of these people who looks back and say, oh, weren't they, goodness, they were so stuck in their ways. When everyone wore a suit to, sh- to church, and there was a time when that was true, by the way. People wear, they would, it would be Sunday best. Everyone came dressed up for church. And we all thought, oh my goodness. And they sang different sorts of songs, and they used methods of preaching the gospel. We might think it antiquated today, and we look back and we laugh at them. We think, oh, why, do, why can't they just be a bit more modern about things? And then what we don't realize is with every passing day, we become the generation like that, unless we're very aware of ourselves. That's what happens. That's just life, because we all get a bit older every day, and when we don't challenge our behaviors, and we don't challenge our practice, very quickly we can become the generation like the one that we would so readily laugh at and maybe criticize. So how does the gospel of peace make us mobile? Well, it helps us to understand what's important and what's not important. What's key and what what do we have to hold tight to and what can we let go? And so even how I've described the way we might look back, we realize that what we wear doesn't really matter. And we would even have scriptures for that. You know, God, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So it doesn't matter what we wear. Uh, But it did to another generation, a previous generation. So we need to know what's open-handed and what's closed-handed. The gospel, by the way, as we've described, is what is in the closed hand. Jesus is the only way to the Father. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. These are closed-handed issues. They're not open for debate in that sense. It's it's clear in the word. We want to hold that tight in a closed hand. And then how we worship, how we meet together, how we do group life, dare I say it. These need to be open-handed in order that we'll be flexible, and yet we'll be standing firm. Do you see what I'm getting at here? There are items which are in a closed hand and items that are in an open hand. And we need to be wiser at which is which. The church often gets into trouble when it does the other way around. It opens the hand on theological issues like, is Jesus enough? And it closes the hand on things like methods of worship or types of songs we would sing or how we might meet together or group life or any one of many other things. That's often how a church comes unstuck. And Paul knew something about flexibility, both internally but also in terms of his own walk and in terms of his witness as well. And in 1 Corinthians 9, we can read about how flexible he was willing to be. And remember, please, this is the Pharisee of Pharisees. And that meant that rules and regulations, that form was everything. 
as you grew up. This is how it would have been taught, what you wear, how you eat, who you eat with, how you wash before and after you eat, the times of years, the festivals. This was his, a rigid religion that he was stuck into. And this is what he writes as he came under the influence of the gospel that brings flexibility. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, we read this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul knew what was important and what was not important. And yet to those around him, they would have been shocked at some of those things. If you were a Jew in that rigid religion, you're suddenly saying, I've become like one not under the law. How on earth is that possible? But he knew what the gospel was. It gave him stability and it made, he was able to be very flexible in terms. He, he was not unsure of where he stood in his standing before God. So he could share the gospel widely and freely because he knew who he was. He knew he was in Christ, safe and secure. It wasn't about externals. And so in terms of his, the practice, it meant that he, that he went through. In, t- in terms of reaching people, he could be incredibly flexible. Stable and secure means that you can also be very mobile. Now, David, King David, he knew something of flexibility. He needed to. And if you remember the story of David and Goliath, just a fabulous story. And the young, young David wasn't really old enough to be in the army yet, but his brothers were. And his brothers were on the front line. And the, and the front line was one side of a valley. And the Philistine army was on the other side of the valley. And David would, uh, came out to meet his brothers to bring them some supplies. And while he was there, Goliath on the other side of the valley came out and issued this challenge against the Israelite army. And David witnessed it. He heard what Goliath had said. And he's like, that's that's not good enough. No way does this guy get to challenge the armies of the living God and get away with it. Who's going to fight him? And of course, no one was prepared to fight him. So David says, I'll do it. I'll, I'll take him down. And so they, they kind of scratch their heads in the tents of the Israelite captaincy, and they're wondering what to do. And it goes to the king, and the king says, you better wear my armor. It's probably the best armor around. So you're going to have to wear my armor. And so David puts on Saul's armor, and he can barely move He's not used to fighting in armor. It's inflexible. He can't move the way he's going to need to move. He knows the weapons he's going to use, and it's not a sword. It's going to be a sling, and he needs the flexibility of a free arm, and the armor is going to stop him doing that. And so eventually he says, I can't fight in your armor. I need to fight in what I'm used to. And so he takes off Saul's armor, and of course we know the story. He wins an incredible battle over the Philistines and kills Goliath because he knew that he needed to be flexible in terms of his approach to the battle. And so we come to our groups. We've talked all about groups today. You saw Laurel and Hardy up on the screen there talking about groups, and we've interviewed others explaining what groups are. This is partly why we're doing this, so that we can be flexible 
so that one size doesn't fit all. You might find that the group's model that we've had up to now has been like trying to wear somebody else's armor. It doesn't really fit. I can't fight in it. And so we're saying we can be flexible with that. That's an open-handed issue. Meeting together, that's there in the Bible, but quite how that is, is an open-handed issue. So we're trying to do the things that we're reading in God's Word, even as we organize ourselves as a church. So stability and mobility. These are two things that I want us to understand today. And just as we draw to a close, and I see that we're going to have to do that quite quickly, I want to say one or two things about balance. Often Christians, and this is more of a pastoral thing, this is the thing for you if you're a believer. Listen, Christians get into trouble because they become unbalanced in their Christian walk. And I don't, I'm not talking about mental illness or anything like that. I'm just talking about their approach to faith. And some Christians get, uh, this is a phrase that you will have heard before, uh, they major on minors. They get very caught up with peripheral things. And that, those peripheral things become major in their lives. So it might be the latest Christian paperback. Unless you've read this, and it becomes all about this one person's ideas. It all becomes about one place you've got to go. It all becomes about one idea. It might be the nation of Israel. It might be, uh, it, 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 it could be any aspect that are all good and right. And we're suddenly that's the major thing for a believer. And they can become unstable and unbalanced because of those things. Majoring on minors. It's all about this one thing. And you've, you must have experienced it. You're talking to someone and it just keeps coming back to this one thing as if that was all Christianity was. Listen, the Christian fight of faith is a long fight. It's, it's a long race. It's all the way to the end. It's the, the finish line is, is a long way off for most of us. And we need to pace ourselves well in order to finish the fight well. And becoming unbalanced, imagine trying to run that marathon that those guys did last week, the London Marathon, with one shoe. You're not going to get far. Why? Because you're unbalanced. You just, for me, I'd just be running around in circles, you know, it's like, it would be unbalanced. And that can often happen in my experience with Christians. It's all about one thing or one issue. It's all about what do we think about Genesis 1? And until we're clear on that, we can't do anything else. No, there are lots of other important things in there too. Or it's all about the Holy Spirit and nothing else, as if the Bible hadn't been written before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. There's a, there's, it's balance. We need a balanced approach, and God's provided his word and his people to give us a balance as we move forward together. And finally, just to say this, don't be unaware of the enemy's schemes to take you off your feet. Now, there are two uh, uh, kind of things the enemy would love us to believe. One, that his influence is, is everywhere, that under every seat there's demonic forces trying to get at you. He'd love you to believe that. And the other thing is that he's nowhere and has no influence and no effect. And again, see the idea of balance there. He's everywhere or he's nowhere. And actually, the Bible says, don't be unaware of the devil's schemes. Just don't be unaware. Remember that God is victorious, that he's won. Jesus has won the day, but we have an enemy. And it's a matter of prayer, and it has been for me over the years. Oh, Lord, show me. Show me where the enemy gets to me so that I can combat him, so that I can have my, sh my feet shod with this gospel of peace, knowing that I am free, knowing that I'm loved, knowing that I'm secure, and that you would know those things as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll finish 
with this verse. Paul sums up all that we've been saying and gives us the reason why we would do it at all. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. There's such purpose as we engage in the fight. It's not in vain. God's with you. Every act of faith is multiplied by a mighty God to bring about his kingdom purposes. We need to believe that. Paul, uh, before he says that, he reminds us of the ultimate victory of Christ, that he has conquered all. He's won the day. We get to join him in his army to fight on his side. That's when, you remember when Joshua uh, was going to attack uh, Jericho and he was wondering what to do and he was confronted with the angel of the Lord and he said to the angel of the Lord as he saw the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword he said are you for us or for our enemies and it's like the angel of the Lord says hey you've misunderstood uh, I'm here I fight for the armies of the living God he it's like actually get yourself on my side Joshua that's the deal and in Christ that's what's happened with us we find ourselves on his side and he's fighting and winning and for us to join with him in this battle is what he's asking us to do. Father, I pray that we would find ourselves shod with the shoes, the sandals, those, that footwear of the stability and maneuverability that comes from understanding what you have done for us deeply, living it out, going there for comfort, letting it bring us mobility and flexibility in our relationships together, in our reaching out to others. Amen.